Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and to study your word. We ask that you guide and lead us in all that we look at as we as we look at the second half of this chapter, the, the year of Jubilee, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in the first half, we started talking about the year of Jubilee, and every seventh year was a, a uh, year when everything would return, Leviticus 25. On the seventh year, there would be no work. They weren't to plant on. They weren't to plant their fields. All they were able to do would be to take what grew of its own. And even then, they were not to harvest what was there. They could just go out and get a day's worth, you know, a day's worth of uh, food and bring it back to eat. Suppose they wanted to give some to their neighbor. Well, they could they give it give, away. Yeah. But they just couldn't harvest it. They couldn't go out with all their bushels and harvest. And say, hey, here, go, get, go help yourself. Well, they disobeyed that law, right? <laughs> yes, they did. That's why they were sent into captivity for 70 years, because they disobeyed the, yeah. the Sabbath year. And then in the you know, year of Jubilee, which was the 50th year, uh, after seven Sabbath years, they were to do, everything was returned back to, to people. Uh, if you sold yourself into slavery, you were... You know, you were returned and let loose. You, you sold your land; it was returned to you. You sold <laughs> everything you sold was returned to you on the year of jubilee. So we're going to be continuing from verse 23, chapter 25, verse 23 in Leviticus. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, mine, and you are my strangers, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possessions, you shall grant a redemption for the land. If your brother be waxen poor and has sold away some of his possessions, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then it shall be, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if a man have none to redeem it, he himself is able to redeem it. Then let him count the years of sale thereof and restore the overplus unto them man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. But if he not be able to restore it to him, then that which was sold shall remain in the hand of him that bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. So we're going to stop right there for a moment, because this is talking about the value of the land. God, if you, if you remember the story, when they get into the promised land, they, by lot, they were assigned portions of the land. And that land was belonged to each tribe, and then each family within those tribes got a portion of land. And God said, even if they were to sell it, it was to not be sold forever. Okay? Uh, if you were poor and had to sell your land, you would get it back no later than the year of Jubilee. And so this is a big deal. God says it is yours forever. And it's actually a picture in many ways of this planet where Adam and Eve sold the planet into Satan's hands by their disobedience, and God has redeemed it through Jesus and has made it his again. So this is a picture of God buying back. And so in this case, it says you shall present, you, if you sell your land, you can redeem it. You can buy it back. So if I'm broke and I have to sell my land, then my brother could come along behind me and say, okay, I've got the money to pay you back what you bought the land for. And does anybody remember the, the, the one book that's all about this story of redemption? The book of Ruth. Okay. Boaz uh, bought everything that Naomi owned because her husband sold it, left, left the country, and had to come back. And Boaz bought back as the kinsman redeemer. He says, I'm buying back everything that belongs to Naomi. Not for himself, but for Naomi and their firstborn child, which would be Naomi's, be considered Naomi's son. And it says, if your brother be waxen poor or, or became poor, and has sold away some of his possessions, and then his kin, if any of his kin come to redeem it, then they shall redeem that which their brother has sold. Okay, so this is the provision that God has made for the children of Israel. If all of a sudden you sell yourself and then your relatives realize that you've sold, sold basically the family land, they can come back and buy it back. And the, the person who bought it from you 
did not have an option not to sell it back to the family. It was a requirement that they were to sell it back. Uh, ideally, what the brother should have done in the first place was gone to his family and said, hey, I'm uh, having trouble, you know, would you guys help me out? Sometimes you can't buy them out, you know, you mm -hmm. can't. So the whole family has to get together, right? And How, however, this was pass that the, the nearest kinsman was to was to pay to was to be the redeemer, and so this is what happens he, they, they, when they have it. And it's his kin is what it really means. It's his, it would start with brothers and then uncles they had a they had a set pattern of who the nearest kinsman who could redeem it was the one who was to come in and redeem it yeah in this case it says kin in the old in the in the king james yeah, yeah, says kin. so you're talking about buyer beware the buyer had to be careful. well the buyer knew that this would happen the new you know the, the buyer, buyer knew that if he if he bought something from somebody that any of his kin could could give him back what he paid now they weren't going to cheat him. They couldn't steal the land. They had to pay him what he paid. Okay, it wasn't that he wasn't going to get the land. You know, wasn't going to get his money back. Is so, uh, if he paid ten thousand dollars for it, then they would have to pay him back ten thousand dollars. Yeah, not. No, there was no. Now and remember, we already have talked about this. If you were only two years away from the year of jubilee, then the price of the land would be pushed really cheap because. Worst case, worst case is you were buying it for two years. But that wouldn't work. But well, and God said you had to, you know, yeah. you were time. you were to do it, you know, but you, but you weren't going. They weren't to cheat you and say, well, you're going to pay me top dollar for my land that you can only have two years. By the same token, if it was the first year and it was 50 years till you know 49 years to the year of jubilee, you couldn't tell them, you know, uh, well, I'm only going to give it to you for five thousand when it's worth, you know. A hundred thousand. So both ways, you were not to take advantage of each other. So this kind of how do they know when jubilee starts and like every fifty years? But like if somebody moved there thirty years, they wouldn't know. Yeah. The Israelites knew when the year oh, of jubilee, when the year of jubilee was going to come. So forty-nine years, right? Well, forty-nine uh, seven Sabbaths, forty-nine years on the fiftieth was the jubilee. So every 50 year, 50th year was the year of Jubilee, and we're getting into what exactly happens just. First off, the land gets returned. Okay. On the 49th, right? Yeah, well, we bought it on the 40, you know, with 49 years, and you got to have that land for a long time, and if you're going to have it that long, then you paid a lot more for the land, because you're going to get to use it for 49 years. Right, and they were not to take advantage of it. You know, the guy that was going to have it for 49 wasn't going to say, well, I'm only going to give you $5,000 for this land I'm going to use for 49 years. Even though that's all he paid for it or something? Well, because it was, that would be taking advantage of this poor person who needed the money. And by the same token, he wasn't to take advantage of you saying, well, I need top dollar even though you can only have it for two years. You know, so it was a possession, you know, something that God had already put in there. But by the same token, if you have a, a near kinsman who was fairly wealthy and he found out that you sold the land, then he could come in and pay what you paid and get the land back and back into the family. Uh, so this was a big deal to keep the property in the family. Uh, American Indians, for the most part, the ones that had considered weren't roaming, had that kind of mentality. This is our land. We don't sell it to anybody, and that was a big deal with uh, when when Americans came in and wanted to buy their land, and they're going, "No, this is our land. We don't sell it." They had that same idea that this is our land. It's our our heritage. It's our possession, and that's what God's telling the Jews: "This is your family plot." And we see that come into play when uh, Ahab wants to buy the this vineyard that's close to the palace and the guy says no it's my family's plot I don't want to sell it and Jezebel uh, made people give false witness and say that he was cursing God they killed him and then they went in and bought the land for nothing and nobody nobody challenged her because she was willing to kill people for it so uh, but that was that whole mentality in there uh, that the land was your land it was your your family's land and it would be forever which is part of the reason why when the Jews have come back to their land, they're going, this is our land. You can't, 
it was given to us, it was divided up by lots. This, this particular land belongs to this tribe, this land belongs to this tribe, you know, and, they, and they were able to run down what belongs to them. And of course the Arabs in the area don't want to let go of the land. Even though the Jews have been there continuously, and there have been Jews in the Promised Land continuously since they went in under Joshua. So lots, you're talking about like a, a track that they show lots of different parts. No, cast, casting lots, right? Random, cast, random, cast randomly drawing, the lots, whether they, they're dice or random. sticks or whatever, whatever form of random, random randomizing, they, they go, this is, your, this is your territory. Random uh, gamble. Um, random, uh, yeah, and then if you want to find that out, you know, go to, go to Joshua, at the end of Joshua, you'll see who got what and, and, and all of that. So it says if you, then it says if a man has no one to redeem it, he has no brothers, nobody in his family, well, you know, that's wealthy enough or cares enough to buy the land, then let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the over, overplus to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. So this is the idea. All of a sudden, you get a little bit of money. Your your, your fortunes have turned around. You've sold your property. You could go back to the person and redeem your land, and he has. You have to be able to give him what he paid plus what he was making on it. Okay, now you want to see, you think about this is farmland, okay? And so the price was based on, because he's not technically buying the land in one sense, even though he's, he is, but he's more or less leasing the land for, for you know, till the next Jubilee. So if he's coming up and he says, okay, I bought it considering that I was going to make $5,000 a year on this property, you know, in, in harvest. But he goes, last year I made $7,000. So you'd have to make up the difference between what he has bought it for, $5,000 a year, plus the $2,000. Does that make sense? So you'd be giving him $7,000 a year uh, for however many years were left on to Jubilee. And if it did less money, you were stuck giving him what, it, what he paid for it per year. Okay, so you sold it, there was 10 years till Jubilee, and you all of a sudden you have a reversal in your fortunes, and it's five years late, later, then you'll calculate five years out. Does that make sense on what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, and this is verse 28. But let him not, and if he not be able to restore it, then that which was sold shall remain in the hand of him that bought it until the year of Jubilee, and the Jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return his possession. So the longest period of time that you're going to be able to purchase this was until the year of Jubilee. All right? And that's what we said at the very beginning. If the year of Jubilee has just passed and you bought it on the, with 49 years, you get to use that land for 49 years. And at the end of 49 years, it's going back to the person you, you bought it back or his family if it's been long enough that he passed away or whatever. But it's going to go back to that person at the end of the 49 years. It has to. Has to. It's mandatory. He can't. Because the land will not be sold forever. And this is, this is a picture. This is a picture of God buying back his possession from Satan. It is a picture of him retaining possession always. So this is the land could not be sold. Now there is an exception here that we're going to look at as we get into verse 29. But if a man sell a dwelling house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold, Within a year may he redeem it. And if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city shall be established forever to him that bought it throughout his generations that shall not go out in the year of Jubilee. In the houses, but the houses of the villages shall have no, which have no wall around them shall be counted as fields in the country. They shall be redeemed and they shall go out in the year of Jubilee. All right, so if you're... If you were deciding, I didn't want to live out in the country. I want to live in the city. Okay, in a city being defined by one with walls around it. Then, if you had your house there and you had to sell your house in the city, it could go away forever. Okay, and the reason being is because just like any place else, you know, if you're in a town or a city, you really don't own much. You own a quarter acre or an eighth of an acre or whatever it is, and you stick a house on it. <laughs> You don't own any land. The land does not produce anything. So you are really just selling real property in this case. Does that make, make sense? You're not selling something where 
I'm out in the middle of the field. I, you know, I can put a house in there, but I can, I can also plant grapes over here and corn over here and, and wheat over here. I can, I, I can plant fields and, you know, I can plant even lots of fields and be able to support my family. Uh, could you technically plant field in a walled city? Yeah, probably could, but in those days your houses were right, right up against each other, much like any city this day. So if you sold your house in a walled city, you had one year to redeem it. And that could again be your family could come back and redeem it. Uh, because in this case, the idea is somewhere you have land. Okay, because you, your land was always to be part of your family's land. And this is true pretty much until recent years. Families would buy great big lots of land, you know, acres and acres of land, and then you know, your oldest child got married, you know, married, so you'd build a house off on the corner of the land and you'd give them a few acres around, you know, and you'd be partitioning off your land to your family. And so this is what he's talking about. Somewhere these people that live in a city have some field someplace that they can move out to. You're, but you're not going to take the only thing they have. And Jesus talks about the same thing. He says, if you take a pledge of, from somebody and you take their, their cloak or their or their garment, he goes, you, you give it back to them in the, at night because they use it to, as a blanket against the cold. And so it was that same idea. You can't take away every last thing that they own. And this is where he's at. You can't take away what they, every last thing of what they own because these guys in a city, there would be some place where they would have their fields and, and their flocks and their, their crops being grown. Uh, but if it's in a, a village, they treated a village basically as a field because the village usually just was a cluster of houses with fields you know with their fields around them and they and they clustered their houses for protection purposes mostly because uh, if you were in the middle of nowhere by yourself you were subject to being raided and attacked but if you were in, if you were grouped together you were in defense if you were in a walled city it was even and that's why a lot of people moved to the walled city because it was a great big defend, defense because you had the big wall. And, but uh, as you moved out to the villages, you grouped together so there'd be a group of five to 10 houses and five or 10 families were able to defend themselves against invaders, theoretically. Uh, much better than somebody who was just living out in the middle of nowhere by themselves and, and could be, be attacked. All right, verse 32, Notwithstanding, the cities of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possessions may the, may the Levites redeem at any time. Okay, one thing about the Levites, and I don't know if you all remember this, but the Levites were not given any land in the promised land. They were given cities. All over, the, all over Israel, they were given cities, and they were called the cities of refuge. And so the Levites would, ha would run these, these towns of refuge, and they would have a small area around the city where they would be able to plant some fields and tend some, tend some sheep right outside the city. But the city was their possession. So if they sold their houses in their city, that was all they had. They didn't have any place else. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't like I had my city, my, my house in Jerusalem, and my field was out someplace you know, out, out there in the, in the middle of where they only had their city. So they could not sell their place without being able to, to redeem it because that's all they had. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the cities of refuge were used if somebody committed manslaughter, they accidentally killed somebody. Uh, they were to get to the city of refuge as fast as they could before one of the people's uh, kin that they killed got hold of them and executed them. Okay. So they had they had, they had the 49-year, not or the one-year. They could not. Theirs could always be redeemed. All, 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 even more than 49. Yeah, because oh. well, in the end of 50 years, it was going to be returned to them. Oh, I see. But even though they were in a walled city, their their houses would be returned if they were a Levite. Okay. I thought, uh, when you said that, because I remember reading it someplace where if you kill somebody, as long as they don't, if the kin doesn't see you and don't kill you first, you can go to the city and live. Otherwise, you're going to be dead. Right. If you could make it to the city of refuge yeah. Yeah. in front of the kinsman that's trying to kill you, then you would have a court trial and you'd have to prove that it was an accident. And if it was an accident, then you had to stay in the city of refuge until the high priest died. 
So that could be one year or it could be a hundred years. You didn't know, well, probably not a hundred years, but you didn't know exactly how long you were going to be stuck there, but you, you could not. And if you left the city of refuge before the high priest died, they were, your they life, they could kill you if you were outside the city. Okay. So the, the Levites had these cities all scattered all across Israel. And they could not sell their, even in their, in their possessions, they, they were always able to redeem. And it says in verse 33, And if a man purchase of the Levites, then the house that it was sold and, and the city of his possession shall go out in the year of Jubilee, for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. Okay? So, again, it's because that's all they have. They did not have property. Verse 34, But the field of the suburbs of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. Okay, and remember I said they had these cities and they had this little buffer around it where they had some, some fields because they obviously uh, had to grow some food in case the people did not bring their tithes and offerings into the temple to support them. Because the, the Levites and the priests were paid, got their money from the tithes and offerings that came into the, to the temple. And many, many, many times in Israel's history, the people did not bring their tithes and offerings into the temple because the temple wasn't even operating a lot of times. And so the Levites would have to stay in their towns and they would get this little area that they were able to farm and, and get produce food. Uh, they were supposed to have an abundance of food, but oftentimes they did not get supported. And... Uh, so it says they may not sell their fields. They could sell their houses in the city, but they could not sell their fields. Verse 35, And if your brother be waxen poor and falls into decay with you, then you shall relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger and a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury of him or increase, but fear your God and your that your brother may live with you. You shall not give him your money upon usury, nor lend him your victuals for increase. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt. I give you the land of Canaan and, and to be your God. All right, so your brother's poor and you decide to give him a loan. And in Israel, they could not charge in interest. That's what usury means. Usually when we use the word usury, we mean high interest, but it really just means interest period. Uh, in common day uh, terminology, usury is high interest. But in, for a Jew, they could not loan, loan money with interest to their fellow Jew. Now, it's going to tell you other places that they could charge interest to strangers. <laughs> they could charge interest to foreigners. But they could not charge interest to other fellow Jews. And... Because the reason being is that God says, you're going to take care of your brothers. And this goes back to Cain's famous statement, am I my brother's keeper? And God's answer would be, yes, you're supposed to be your brother's keeper. You're supposed to take care of your brother. You're not supposed to harm your brother. Um, and, uh, and it says you're not to lend him your food for, for increase. In other words, you know, you're to give them your food. You're to, you're to help them out. You're not to take advantage of your poor poor brother. Uh, and this is why God said, you know, when you harvest your fields, you are not to glean the fields and they were to leave the corners of the fields unharvested so that the poor could go out and work for their food. Okay. Granted, they didn't have to go out and sow the seed and plow, you know, plow the fields and sow the seeds and keep them weeded, but they still had to go out and do something in, other, in order to eat. All right, they, weren't, they weren't expecting to just have somebody, you know, they couldn't just sit at the corner of the field and say, okay, I want, my, I want part of your food, you know, part of your food from your, uh, from, your, from your fields. And God is going to go even further than that to say that if your brother is hungry and, and goes into your orchard, you are to let them just pick fruit and eat it. Now, they weren't to come in with a big bushel basket and, and fill the bushel basket and go home with it. But they were, they were able to go, they, you know, God said if they come into your orchard, they're able to pull, you know, take three or four, you know, apples as long as they're for their food and to eat it. You know, they were able to go into the field and pick some heads of grain, okay, and God is telling them you are to be generous with one another. 
Now, you weren't to go into the guy's field with your sickle and knock down, you know, four or five, you know, acres of land and say, okay, I'm going to go make some flour and bread, but you could go in and strip some handfuls of the grain and, you know, and take it home and grind it and make your bread and whatever. Uh, and again, it's God saying you are to take care of one another. The church is given that same commission that we're to take care of one another. When we know somebody's in need, we're to help them out. We're not to say, oh, you poor person, you're so lazy, you deserve what you're getting. You know, it's we're to help one another. The reason that we do our little food bank, it's not the greatest food bank in the world, but we have enough that when somebody has a need, we have stuff to supply to them and help them out. And this is what God's saying. You're to help one another out. And again, it's not to make them rich. You know, you weren't to, you know, they weren't to come into your field and strip your field bare because, you, because God said you could go in and you know, grab, your, grab your dinner. Um, but they were to go in. And, and the reason being, I am the Lord your God. I gave you this land. It is my land, and you're living on the fatness of my gifts. And we really have to come down to this, and this is where we... When we teach about stewardship, everything we have belongs to God. We wouldn't have it if it, God didn't give it to us. And if we get really stingy and we're not going to help anybody else because we think it's ours, God will very quickly show us how fast it isn't ours and do things to take it away and keep, it, keep us from having it. And you'll see reversals in people's fortunes and stuff because they got too greedy. Uh, and God says, you, you're to take care of one another, help one another. And that doesn't mean we take somebody who's totally lazy and doesn't want to do any work because all of God's provisions were that they went out and did something. Okay, He wasn't saying, oh, go just sit in your corner and wait for them to harvest from the field and they'll bring you a bushel, bushel of wheat from their field. Just, you just sit in your room. No, you had to go out to the field and get your, get your food. And again, this is a picture of what Ruth does in the book of Ruth. She goes out to the fields and she gleans the fields and of course, Boaz says, okay, you guys let, you know, when she's right behind you, you purposely drop stuff for her because he wanted to take care of her. I like that story, though. <laughs> so, but this is all where this story starts coming, coming from. Verse 39, unless there's any comments or thoughts. Verse 39, and if your brother that dwells with you be waxen poor and be sold unto you, you shall not compel him to serve as a bondservant, but as a hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, both he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family and to his possessions of his father shall he return. For they are my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as bondmen. Bondman. You shall not rule over them with rigor, but shall fear your God. Both the, your bondmen and your bondmaids, which you shall have, shall be of the, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of you, of them shall you buy bondmen and bondmaids. Moreover, the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them shall you buy, and of their families that are with you, and they beget in your land, and they shall be your possession, and they shall, and you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your bondmen forever, but over your own brother, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over them as one, one other with rigor. All right, so we got some definitions we're going to have to define here as we go through this. Uh, verse 39, And of, of your brethren that dwell with you, that become poor, and they, and they are sold unto you, so you could buy them as servants, you shall not compel, and this literally means to basically be harsh with, all right, you're not to, you're not to compel them to serve as a bond servant. Now, as we've talked about bond servants before. Does anybody know what a bond servant is? All right, we're going to help you. At this person who's been poor sells themselves into servitude with a family. Okay, he's going to be let go after so many years, whatever it is, to the year of jubilee. He could get to the point of Jubilee and say, you know what, I really like this family I'm working for. I can't handle, I can't handle my money anyway. I'm going to be broke. You know, he's going to let me go and I'm going to be broke in, in two or three years. And you know, I'll have to resell myself and my family. You know, I just want to be this person's servant forever. He goes, he would go to the person saying, and he would renounce his right to be freed. And he says, I want to be your bond servant. 
They would take him over to a post and they would drive an awe through his ear and put an earring into his ear showing that he was a bond servant. He was a servant for life by choice. Okay, and we can't really picture how that might be, but you know, he just he likes the family that you know the family's been treating him good, they've been fair to him, you know. And like I say, he knows he's an idiot, he's gonna be broke again in in a year. He, just, he knows that he can't handle his own property. Maybe he knows he has this tendency to be lazy, you know, and not plant his fields, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, he just knows I can't handle my money. This guy's been nice to me, you know, I could end up with a worse owner the next time I have to sell myself. So he says, I just want to stay with this family. At that time, he will be called a bond servant. And if you remember in the, in the New Testament, the apostles and the writers of the epistles almost always use the term that we are bond servants for Christ. We have voluntarily made ourselves the slaves of Jesus, is what they're saying. All right? So does that help understand what bond servants are? It's a very, very specific title. And a bond servant was no longer subject to the year of Jubilee because they have voluntarily said that I'm going to be a servant perpetually. All right? So they're no longer a free person. They're not going to be released. They made themselves a bond servant, and they'd usually make this decision as they were coming up to the year of Jubilee. Because at the year of Jubilee, they're going to be made free. You know, I mean, they can make it any time they wanted, but the, the usual time they would be doing this is, okay, we're in year 49. Next year, you're going to set me free. You know, hey, I just like, you know, might as well just keep me here because I know I'm not going to be able to handle my finances. I'm not going to be able to take care of things. Just make me your servant for life. So loop Jubilee is, doesn't count anymore. And a bond servant, a Jubilee would not count because they are no longer... And for us, when we looked at this, what we would probably call a person um, from the early 17, from the 1700s, they call, were called indentured servant, servants. And many people would, would sell themselves in, as an indentured serv, servant. They would get somebody to pay their passage from Europe to America, and they would serve that family for six to seven years without pay they would just be fed by that family and, and live in whatever conditions that family provided at the end of their indenture period they would be set free to to start their new life and that's kind of what that would probably be the closest we would say this type of servitude was you've paid my debts i'm going to serve you for till the jubilee or some other period i mean they they could work out some other period you know of being their servant that's good because i have heard I read bond servant. I always wonder what that was. Yeah, how do you spell an awe in their ear? A W E. A W L. A W A and all. A W L. Yeah. Oh, okay. And it says, huh? Oh, I was saying it better one in their nose. I mean, it's in their ear, right ear. In their ear. I believe it was the right ear, but I don't remember. I'm sure it was the right ear, but always in the right ear. I see. Well, that's interesting. So they'll know who the slave is, or who that guy is. Well, they'll know because it was an earring showing that they were indentured for a bond servant. I understand. And they were not to be mistreated. And you wouldn't become a bond servant of somebody that you thought might mistreat you, you know, because you'd watch how they treated their other other servants. And bond servants were an inheritance that you, you passed on. You basically indentured yourself for life. Um, it says, but as a hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And that's, you weren't to be cruel. You weren't, I mean, this was somebody, this was a brother who, who needed your help. You weren't to be cruel to them. You weren't to, you weren't going to say, well, I'll buy you, but you've got to become my bond servant. You know, it was, you weren't trying to compel them to do this. And a matter of fact, the nicer you were, the more likely they were to become a bond servant to you. Because they, they, you know, they, you basically in, in, in Exodus it would say, you know, you like your master, you think your master is a good way, you know, you know, good. Then you go to him and become their bond servant, and uh, and if they don't want to become a bond servant, then they're going to be freed in the year of jubilee. You get to just use them, and and basically it says you're not to be cruel, you're not to treat them with rigor, you're not to basically use a whip. You know, it's you're, they they are just there, and you're to. They're, they are expected to work. You're expected to get work from them, but you're not to be cruel in the process. And uh, 
It says, you shall, and then he shall depart from you, both he and his children with him shall return unto his own family, unto the possessions of his father shall he return. So at the year of Jubilee, he's free. He can go back to the land that he owns, that his family owns, and say, okay, we're all free. And if he sold his family, he gets to take his family with him when he, when he leaves. And it says, for you were my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. You shall not be sold as bondmen. Okay, so when you were first bought, you could not go straight to being a bondman, a permanent slave. You know, you couldn't say, well, I'm poor, I need to be sold. And I couldn't then say, well, fine, I'll buy you, but you have to become a bond slave. I couldn't compel you to be sold as a bond slave. I would have to hire your service for that period of time. And then if you liked my, liked my way that I had you work and treated you, then you could say, I like you and I want to become a bond slave. But I could not say, well, I'll buy you, but if I'm going to buy you, you've got to be a bond slave. You couldn't do that. And God very clearly said no to that. And it says, you shall not rule over them with rigor, for, but shall fear the Lord. And again, there's that harshness, that severity. Both your bondmen and your bondmaids, which you shall have, shall be of the heathen which are around about you, and of them you shall buy bondmen and bondmaids. So you're, the strangers, the aliens, the non-Jews, you could buy them as bondmen. You could buy them as permanent slaves, but you couldn't buy your fellow Jew straight in as a bondservant. Moreover, the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them shall you buy, and their families that, which are with you, which you beget in your land, they shall be your possession. In other words, when you buy a slave from outside of the, they, they belong to you. They weren't to be let loose. They, they did not have the year of Jubilee to look forward to. They were forever yours. And you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you inherit them of possession. They shall be your bonds, bondmen forever. But over your brethren, children of Israel, you shall not rule over, over one another with rigor. So again, he's saying, you're to take care of your own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is kind of a strange mentality. You can mistreat those that are living amongst you that aren't Israelites, but your, your brothers and sisters that are Israelites, you will not take advantage of them. You will not mistreat them. You will not make them your slaves unless they choose to be that. All right, any comments? Okay, verse 37. And if a sojourner or a stranger wax rich by, the, by you, and your brother shall d that dwells by them wax poor, and sells himself unto the stranger or the sojourner by you, or to, or to the stock of the stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh kin to, unto him of his family may redeem him, or if he be able, he may redeem himself. Okay, so now he's applying this in Israel, even if you sold yourself to a foreigner in the land, you know, uh, a Moabite, an Amorite, an uh, Edomite, an Egyptian, whoever it might be, you could still be redeemed from them. It was the law of the land. You could not sell yourself other than this voluntary bond slave activity. You could not sell yourself permanently your family could come back and redeem you. Or if somehow you made enough money on the side, you could redeem yourself. And so these rules for redemption were, were applicable even to the stranger that bought an Israelite. So in this case, the, the, the stranger better know his laws in the, in the land of Israel because he's going to be, may get surprised when they come back and say, ah, we want to buy our brother back. And, he, and if he tried to say, no, you can't, they're going to go, no, you, you don't understand. Uh, we have the right. To, to redeem him. And verse 50, And he shall be reckoned, and it shall reckon him that bought him from the year that he was sold to, unto the year of the jubilee, and the price of his soul shall be according to the number of years, according to the time of a hired servant, shall, he, shall it be with him. If there be yet many years behind, according to them which shall again give shall give again the price of his redemption out of the money that he was bought for. And if there remain but few years unto the year of jubilee, he shall count with them according to the years, and he shall give them according to his price of his redemption. So again, long time left till Jubilee, the more money they had to pay to redeem him. Short time, the less the money. 
And that made sense because they were only going to get to use him for a couple of years. If it was a year, you know, if it was two years to Jubilee, they would only get two more years of service from him anyway. But if it was 47 years, then they obviously paid more money for him and they'd have to compensate them for the loss of the four, you know, 47 years. Does that all make sense? Uh-huh. All right. And as a yearly hired servant shall he be with him and the other shall not rule with vigor over him in your sight. So again, the, the stranger had the same rules. You were, you were to treat him just as if you had hired him because that's technically what you had done. You had hired them for a certain period of time. And that's how they figured the price of this. You know, if his wage was, you know, $10 a day and you have seven years to the Jubilee, you'd calcu- calculate out $10 a day to Jubilee and that would be the cost that you would be able to, that you would pay him. And so if he was to be redeemed and there's only two years left of that seven years and you would only pay for the two years left on his contract, you wouldn't go all the way back and say, you know, well, I paid for seven years. Well, yeah, but you got five years out of him already. We're not paying you for the five years of service you got. We're paying you only for the two years left in his contract. And if he not be redeemed in those years, then he shall go out in the year of Jubilee, both he and his children with him. For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought forth from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And God keeps reminding them, you were slaves. Don't treat anybody else the way you were treated before. Now remember... This book is only, they've only been out of Egypt for one year. So these people definitely don't remember what it was like to be servants. Now they're going to forget quite often during the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and say, boy, I just wish we were back at, in Egypt. And they'd already done that in Exodus, if you remember. Now we were better off in Egypt. We had, we had more food than we wanted. Well, yeah, but you were working yourselves to death and being beat every day. You know, and all they did was remember that they were, they're hungry and they had food. They didn't remember how hard they had to work. And they're going to do this after Leviticus. They're going to do it for every year for the next 40 years as they wander around the desert, griping about how good it was in Egypt and how bad it is where they were at. And we, we have this tendency, Egypt represents the world. And sometimes Christians will get into this attitude of, it was so much better back when I was in the world. You know, I got to do, you know, name your favorite sin that you did back then, you know, and, and you're forgetting about all the bad that was attached to that sin, you know. I used to drink myself silly every every Friday and have lots of fun, and, you know, you forgot about the hangovers and the tickets and, and all the stuff that you gave up, you know, and... Huh? Broke. Being broke because of it, you know. And, and we do, we tend to do this a lot, even as Christians. I remember when... <laughs> It was so much better back then, you know, and we forget all that God's given us and benefits. And the children of Israel are going to do this over and over. You know, God is providing them food, the manna, every day. And eventually they're going to go, God, we're sick of this manna. We don't like eating the same thing every day. And we all can understand that. If you had to eat the same thing every day, it it could be the best thing in the world. But if you eat the same thing every day, you're going to get tired of it. I can't imagine it, but if I worked in a steakhouse and ate steak every day of the week, I probably would get tired of steak. I can't imagine that happening, but I'm sure I've, heard, I've talked to people who've worked in steakhouses, and they say, yeah, the last thing they want to do is eat a steak. Uh, you know, I worked in pizza places for many years, and, you know, and pizza, you can make different varieties, but after a while, a pizza tastes like a pizza. It doesn't matter what toppings you put on it, it still tastes like a pizza. Uh, you know, and you get to the place where, you know, I got to the place of, oh, I got a choice of a pizza. Uh, I, could go, I could go the spaghetti, but the spaghetti tastes just like the pizza after a while, too, because it's still pasta and sauce. You know, but I can understand them. You know, we've had manna every day. Now, how, I, can, I can picture that they had whole cookbooks on manna. <laughs> Boiled manna, baked manna, you know, make it into a bread, make it into a cake, make it into some, you know, make it look like a steak, you know, lamb or something. Who knows what all they did with it? Quail. <laughs> Quail and manna, you know. Uh, but you can imagine there were probably people who made some great recipes with, with manna. But after a while, manna probably still tasted like manna. Uh, no matter what you did with it, it still tasted like manna. It would be like, I've given you 
500 pounds of rice and you're going to live on this rice for the rest of this year, you know, for the next two years. Well, you can make rice casserole, rice puddings, uh, you know, rice with sauce over the top of it. But after a while, you're still going to say, I can't take rice anymore. And this is where the people would get to at times. Yeah, like the Asians. Rice well, but it, and it's their staple, but they, and they look to it, but rice again. But you know, but we all we all get well, we that get way. Tired of potatoes. And we get tired of potatoes or noodles or whatever it is that we have. You know, whatever we use to stretch our food is we get tired of after a while. And so this is the same thing the Jews are going to do. They're they're just going to get tired of what God's blessing. And if we look at God's blessing and we start looking at it as a bad thing, we're in a bad place. You know, we take God's blessing and we start and we, we begin looking and saying, God, I'm just so happy you're giving me this blessing. Okay, God, you've, you've met my needs for so long. And then after two or three years of just having our needs met, we start going, well, God, could you just maybe give me a little more than my needs? And we start, we start looking down on the blessings of God. And this is what happens over and over with us. And God is trying to remind the people, you were slaves. Do not treat one another that way because you were, I bought you, I bought you, I brought you out. Don't treat each other like slaves because you were slaves and you know you didn't like being slaves. And, and God will try to remind us as we, as we start uh, talking with others and we share the gospel. And maybe we get to a place where we look at somebody who's doing the same sin we used to do and go, I don't want to talk to them. You know, number one, I might be drawn into it, but you know, you know, I deserved what I got. They deserve what they got. You know, and, and we start we start looking really we look down on people and God's saying, uh uh, don't go there. Some of the ex slaves seem to be worse than slave, you know, because they you know, they know how to what to do to make you do it or make yeah, you work well, harder. Know. Or a worse manager would be an ex slave, you know. Yeah, and, and that's true. I mean it's Somebody who's, who uh, quits, quits smoking is sometimes the harshest person on people that are still smoking. Uh, you know, somebody who's given up drinking will be harsher on people that are still drinking sometimes than, than somebody who's never had to deal with it. And we need to be able to have sympathy upon that person. And that's what God's saying. I bought you out of this. Don't abuse one another. And this could be any form of slavery, just as I said, you know. Oh, I give up cigarettes. Why can't you give up cigarettes? You know, and, and the last thing you want to do is hear how easy it was for you know, somebody saying they thought it was easy to give up something and, and, and judging you because you can't give it up. Whereas they have forgotten usually how hard it was to give it up in the first place. Uh, I've met lots of people who have given up some sin in their life and, you know, and you've known them during their give up time. And very few people give it up without having some temptation to going back and they fell three or four times before they finally gave it up but all they do is they remember the victory when I finally gave it up I was victorious and it's always an I in there you know I got over it you should be able to get over it and they can be very harsh on people that haven't given up and this is why God is saying remember remember where you came from remember how hard it was to get there Remember that without his grace, you wouldn't be where you're at, even if it was simple. You know, if it was simple, thank God it was his grace that made it simple to get, get out of it. Some people will just give up and, you know, smoking or drinking or drugs and they'll just say, I'm not doing it, and they don't do it anymore. That's still God's grace. God's, God's keeping the temptation down or keeping the temptation away from them. Other people struggle hard with these sins and just can't seem to get victory over it. But we want to, even in that case, though, you want to make sure that you're not judging other people and saying, well, it was so simple. I just did it. And I've heard that line from a lot of people, you know, when they're talking, you know, listening to them. Well, I just quit. Why can't you? You know, and it's like uh, that's not making them feel any better about their weakness. It's not making them feel any better about getting out of where they're at. Uh, you know, how easy is it to start the habit of reading the Bible every day? Yeah. Hopefully, I think everybody in this room does now read it every day, and it's a habit, and it's pretty simple to do. But if you remember back when you first did it, how many times was it, you know, you slept late, or somebody would call right in the middle of your reading, or, 
or you got an appointment in the morning that you had to postpone it you know normally when you had your habit reading that's when the doctor wanted you to come in or or a job or you know and it just took forever to get that habit yeah you know and that happens a lot and so God is saying remember remember how hard it is to do get to where you're at and we need to always remember that we are saved by grace and not by works so that we don't judge others and say well just just get your pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you'll be okay I've heard people say that time you know at times you know in various formats you know just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you'll be okay you know you really should just do it yourself uh, the old adage that people swears in the Bible God helps them who help themselves okay God's plan is exactly the opposite of both of those he says surrender to me and I will give you the victory the more we try to do it ourselves, the harder it is to for us to get victory in an area when I go and God say God I can do this I can do this God I can really do this God he's gonna say okay you keep trying to do it and you keep falling and failing other times it says God I just surrender you know it's up to you to get me through this and then we have those times when it just seems like, wow, it's so easy to give this up. I gave it to God and he took it away. But then it's weird how a couple things I ask them and other things I just cannot give up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I try and try and it doesn't work. And again, when you get to the place where God says, are you ready to let me take it away from you? It'll be something that's easy to do. And believe me, I've been there. I've been there. Everything, almost everything I've ever had victory in was God coming along and saying, well, are you ready to give this up? And I can guarantee you many times I said, no, I'm not ready to give this up, God. I like it. And God's saying, it's not good for you. I go, I know it's not good for me, but I like it. I think that's my problem because the things that I did give up, I promised myself, but I won't really promise. Something that you like. Because I like it too much. And I know if I promise it, that means I have to. Right. And no, I don't want to do that yet. And at some point you'll go, okay, God, I'm I'm ready to give it up. And... Every time that I've done that with God, he's, you know, he's come to me basically and said, you know, are, ready, are you ready to stop such and such? You know, and I go, okay, God, yeah, I am. And all of a sudden, it's not a problem. You know, I've shared with everybody, I used to be an extreme football fanatic. I used to watch all, the, especially pro, I watched all the pro games. And then one day God said, you know, are you ready to give it up? You know, not, not saying that it was sinful, but it, it took up a lot of time from God. And... You know, I said no for a long time. I wasn't ready to give it up because I, I liked it. I liked my football. I didn't want to give it up. And then one day I just said, oh, yeah. And now it doesn't mean that I never watch a football game, but I am not going to sit there and watch three football games in a row. It's just I have enough hard enough trouble watching one football game in a row. And, it's not, and I'm not saying there's anything sinful by watching football. It's just God saying, hey, you could watch three hours of football or you could – read my word or, or study my word or talk to somebody about my word. Mine is, is, is to give up sweets. And I, <laughs> that's my one downfall. Because I'm a cookie monster. Yeah. So God's got this plan for us to, and, and whether he wants us to or not, when it's time, and God says, are you ready to give this up? And you'll, when it's time, you'll say yes, and he'll take it away. And when he takes it away, it's, it is very simple. Because... <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the year of Jubilee, the year of freedom, Lord, that, that we have a Jubilee coming up in the future when we are, we are in heaven and we are totally redeemed and free, free to live in the land that you're going to provide for us. And we just thank you for all of that in your son's name. Amen.